Thanks, Sarah. Uh, so it's that time of year when lots of us are counting down to holidays. Put your hand up if you're counting down to your holidays. Yeah. Um, so I love going on holiday, um, exploring new places and eating interesting food, taking a break from the usual busy pace of life. And I love the sun. So I grew up in Northern Ireland, um, as is Sarah, and um, we get on average 200 days of rain a year in Northern Ireland. <laughs> That's more than half the year. Um, so I've always felt like I'm definitely suited to life in a hotter climate. Um, back in May, Paul and I went on holiday to Sardinia. We had a really, really nice week, lots of rest. We slept in every day. We walked on beautiful beaches. And we ate amazing Italian food and had ice cream every day. But the weather was not what we had hoped for. The temperature struggled to get above 18 or 19 degrees. It was super windy, and it rained for most of two days. In fact, a similar thing has happened to us on our holidays the last two years as well. So that's three holidays running. This is actually a photo from two years ago in Spain. Um, those holidays were also brilliant, but also featured rain and cold. And since we've got back, I've had a lot of conversations with people who've asked us how our holiday was. And after a while, I started to notice how much I was focusing on the weather, on the negative part of the holiday. The holiday was good, but the weather wasn't great. It wasn't very hot. It was too cold to swim, definitely not sunbathing weather. It was 12 degrees and rained all day one day. I've probably had this conversation with about 75% of the people in this room. <laughs> Reflecting on this, I've realized that I tend to focus on the negative in this way a lot. And I don't think I'm alone in this. British people do like to moan, don't we? And I think Northern Irish might even be a bit worse at this. For some reason, we just don't want to say, yeah, everything's amazing. Do you know what? I've had a brilliant week. For me, statements like that are usually followed by a, but this annoying thing happened. I had a lovely week, but I slept really, lo lovely weekend, sorry, but I slept really badly last night, so now I'm really tired. My event at work went really well, but I wish I'd done this bit differently or I'd remembered to do this. I wonder what examples of this spring to mind for you. Sometimes it's our default reaction to focus on the negative, almost like we can't be truly grateful or positive about something. We need to pick out a fault. We tinge everything with negativity instead of thankfulness. I do think that honesty and realness in our conversations with each other is important, but maybe sometimes we are forgetting to be thankful for the good stuff and missing out on the joy that brings. So let's take a look at our first story from the book of Judges in the Bible, where we see Deborah come up against some much bigger challenges than bad weather and tiredness. The book of Judges is not an easy read. It's one of those Old Testament books that can get you, you can get a bit tied up in knots trying to understand what on earth it means for us today. There are lots of hard to pronounce names, the kind that panic you if you're asked to do a Bible reading from the front or perhaps preach on the passage. It's a story of epic proportions with armies, huge battles and quite a bit of gore. Think biblical Lord of the Rings. It's a story of God's people, the Israelites, and their cycle of turning away from God being oppressed by enemy nations, then crying out to God and God raising up a rescuer or judge to save them from their enemies. Unfortunately, this is a cycle that repeats itself again and again throughout the book, as each time the Israelites fall back into their sinful ways and reject God, and each time God works to rescue his undeserving people out of the mess their sin brings them into. 
Deborah is one of these judges or saviors that God raises up. And we read her story in Judges chapters 4 and 5. Judges 4 sets out the events for us. The Israelites have turned away from God and have joined in with the evil and sinful practices of the people around them. They've been cruelly oppressed by the Canaanites for 20 years. 20 years is a long time. We're not told exactly what this oppression involved, but we can presume that it wasn't pleasant, that the Israelites were not living in freedom, and that it was often violent. The Canaanite army had 900 chariots fitted with iron, a detail that is mentioned several times. These are basically the ancient equivalent of tanks with one meter long spears attached to the front of them. So you can imagine the effect these chariots would have as they charged through an army of foot soldiers or rampaged through a village. Deborah was leading Israel at this difficult time. She was a prophet, someone who heard from God and shared that with his people. And we're told she held court where the Israelites would come and have their disputes decided. She was recognized as a wise counselor and the people came to her to settle all, all sorts of social, legal and relational problems. And in this way, Deborah stands out from all the other judges mentioned in the book. She was a judge who led beyond the battlefield she counseled and guided the people instead of simply being an army general. She's also the only female judge among the 12 stories in the book. This story starts with Deborah calling Barak, an army commander, to come and see her. She tells him that God commands him to lead an army of 10,000 men to a place called Mount Tabor. There, God says, he will lead the Canaanite army with their commander, whose name was Sisera, and their 900 chariots to the river and give them into the Israelite army's hands. Barak agrees on the condition that Deborah goes with him, showing how highly respected and valued she was as a leader. Deborah is willing to go, but also shares a somewhat cryptic message from God here, saying that the honor will not be Barak's, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So we've got Deborah the judge and Barak the army commander on the Israelite side, or the good guys, and Caesarea, the army commander, on the Canaanite side, the bad guys. Does everybody follow that? Yes, good. So the Israelites head off to fight what must have seemed like an impossible battle. The odds were really stacked against them. Remember those iron-clad spiky chariots. So they gather their army of 10,000 men on the mountain, and Caesarea leads his army to meet them at the river below. Deborah commands Barak to go, reminding him that the Lord has gone with him. I wonder how much confidence Deborah or Barak or any one of those 10,000 men had at this point as they stood ready to charge down the mountain to what would surely be certain death up against an army that was bigger and better equipped and that had been oppressing them for years and years. Even Deborah, who is there to give the orders rather than fight herself, must have felt the tension, fear and adrenaline. But they go. The army charges down the mountain and amazingly, against the odds, God gives them the victory. The Bible says that God rooted Caesarea's army and all his chariots by the sword. Caesarea gets down from his chariot and runs away, and the Israelite army fights until not one of their enemy is left. Later in chapter 5, we read that God caused the river to sweep them away, an amazing supernatural act of God. And it reminds me of a scene from Lord of the Rings. So I wonder if it was maybe something a bit like this. We'll watch the clip now. If 
you want him, come and claim him. Of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Another lesser known fact about me probably is that back in the day, in 2005, I did an A-level in classical civilization, so ancient history, which included quite a bit on battle strategy. So I did geek out a little bit when I was researching this talk, and one amazing thing that I read was that there's no way that Caesarea would have camped his army by the river unless it was the dry season and he wasn't expecting any rain. So the river would have been low and definitely not strong enough to sweep away an army like the Bible describes. So it had to be an act of God, a miracle. What a victory. But there's one loose end because Caesarea survives and runs away. And here we meet a new character, a woman named Jael. Now, Jael is technically on the enemy side because her tribe has an alliance with the Canaanites. So Caesarea stumbles upon Jael's tent and thinks, great, I'm saved, I can hide in here. But Jael has another idea. So she invites him into her tent. It says, gives him a blanket and a drink of milk, which makes it sound like she's getting a toddler ready for bed. And she stands guard at the door of the tent. But as soon as he falls asleep, she takes a tent peg and a hammer and knocks it straight through his head and into the ground, killing him, obviously. Um, just then, Barak arrives. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and Jael shows him into the tent where he finds Caesarea dead with a tent peg through his head. I bet Barak was pretty shocked. He probably even arrived at the tent thinking that he was in time to protect Jael and finish off Caesarea, but she beat him to it. Remember Deborah's words earlier that God would deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. So the Israelites win the battle and claim victory over their oppressors. You might be thinking, that's a great story, but what does it have to do with thankfulness or gratitude? And the answer is in chapter 5, which is called The Song of Deborah. It's Deborah's response to the events of chapter 4, and that response is one of complete thanks and praise to God. It's worth remembering that although the events of chapter 4 read a bit like an action movie, they were real. What must it have been like for Deborah to live through seeing her people sin against God and get mixed up in all sorts of damaging behaviours? be cruelly oppressed for 20 years, and then witness a brutal battle. All with the responsibility of leading the people and listening to God on her shoulders. It's incredible that her first response is to praise God. Chapter 5 is a retelling of the story that gives God the glory. It looks beyond the surface of the history, the facts of what happened, and reveals that God's hand was behind it all. I love how these two chapters tell the same story, but in two different ways, or from two different perspectives. Chapter four as history, and chapter five as poetry and praise. Chapter four as history, and chapter five as poetry and praise. When we look at them together, we see God's hand working in all things. 
What could our lives look like if we lived with a Judges 4 and a Judges 5 perspective? Not simply remembering what happened or what we did, but searching out what God was doing. How much more peace would we know if we were always praising God for what he has done and is doing in us? How might our stories change if we made God center stage of the story of our lives? So how can we live with these two perspectives of the history of what happened and the poetry of what God has done? Sometimes noticing what God is doing in our lives and being thankful is easy. When good things happen and when we experience success and happiness, it's not difficult to praise God. But sometimes thankfulness is hard. Sometimes like Deborah, we come up against struggle, pain, suffering and uncertainty. In these times, choosing to be thankful can be really difficult. But it is a choice we have. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read a lot about thankfulness, particularly in Paul's letters in the New Testament. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing always, not being anxious, coming to God in every situation with thanksgiving. That's not easy. And it's definitely something that I find a challenge in my life. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. And looking back, there are times in my life where I can see how God was with me and was working, even though I didn't realize it or acknowledge it at the time. I moved to York back in 2006 to train to be a primary school teacher at York St. John. When I graduated, I got a teaching job, despite niggling doubts about whether that was really what I wanted to do. But I really wanted to stay in York, so I went down what felt like the only path open to me at the time. To cut a long story short, that teaching job did not go well. I find myself in an extremely challenging class and with a quite unsupportive head teacher, and I struggled. I struggled a lot. It overwhelmed me, it made me very unhappy, and it started to affect my mental health. So after just one term, I ended up leaving the job that Christmas. The rest of that year was very hard. I was confused and angry that I'd spent four years of my life training to do something that had turned out so badly. Alongside that, that year, someone close to me let me down badly, causing a lot of pain and difficulty in some of my relationships. And then the church community that I was a part of at the time ended. 2011 was not a great year. <laughs> and my response to all of this was not like Deborah's. I found myself so overwhelmed that I didn't even know how to begin to bring it all to God. I just couldn't connect what was going on for me with God or with church. I actually started coming to G2 during that year um, with my housemates at the time. And although I did come along somewhat sporadically, mentally and emotionally, I really had checked out of church. I found it difficult to engage because I felt I couldn't move past all this difficult stuff. I do think I knew God was there, but in that time, I didn't choose to praise or be thankful and was mostly just very cross on the inside. I needed time and space to heal. I had some good friends that I shared a lot with who were amazing and prayed for me when I couldn't find the words to pray myself. 
And slowly God brought me back to him and into a place where I could move forward in my faith despite the hard things having happened. There was no big lightning bolt moment, just a slow and gentle journey of God helping me to realize that he is my constant, my anchor, where so much else had been broken. I wonder how this time might have been different, though, if I'd been able to be thankful, if I'd been able to see the Judges 5 perspective. Nearly 10 years on, and I can look back on that time and see that actually my degree has opened up the interesting jobs that I've done since. I have learned so much about God's faithfulness and grace. How those experiences, although incredibly tough, have strengthened me, have helped me to empathize and to share my story with other people. Some of it I still wish had never happened, but I know that God's love and peace are stronger than all of it. And now when challenges come along, I think I've got better at leaning on God's strength. I thank God that he was and is there for me always and that he brought me through those difficult times. Thankfulness can look different for each of us. We are probably not all going to launch into poetic songs like Deborah, but you might if that's your thing. Thankfulness doesn't necessarily mean happy or cheerful. Sometimes simply acknowledging that God is there is enough. Simply choosing to trust God, to thank him for who he is, to allow him into the difficult parts of our lives, that is enough. Being thankful doesn't mean that we have to be thankful for the difficult things in our lives, but that we are thankful for what God is doing and who God is despite them. God doesn't ask us to ignore difficult things or to blindly praise and thank him. He doesn't demand our praise in a way that is detached from the reality of our lives. We have a choice to have a thankful attitude. Let's look back at Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These verses tell us to bring our lives to God, to bring our worries, our struggles, our pain, but also to be thankful. The two are not against each other or at odds. Choosing to praise God in hard times is a beautiful act of worship. How could our lives and faith change if, like Deborah, we noticed God's hand in our lives and lived with both a Judges 4 and a Judges 5 perspective? Why don't we practice this together now? Practice having the perspectives of history and poetry and praise to see God's beauty in our lives and be thankful. You might like to close your eyes. And I wonder if you can bring to mind a struggle in your life, something difficult that happened. This might be something from years ago or it might be something more recent. It might be something big or it might be something small like my disappointing holiday weather. Try recalling the events and the feelings that you had. Then think again. Where was God in that situation? How did you know God was with you? What good things, however small, were there too? What people did God put around you? What did God teach you through that time? How have you been able to help others because of it?
lot of these questions can apply to good things that have happened in our lives too, where we can so easily forget to give God the glory. I hope that by asking ourselves questions like this, we can learn to live in the tension of life sometimes being tough, yet being loved by an amazing and never-changing God who is always with us and always worthy of our praise, to have an attitude of gratitude like Deborah.